Well, good morning, everyone. <clears throat> we are continuing in, in John, today turning to John chapter 7, beginning verse 53 and continuing through chapter 8, verse 11. As you turn to that passage, if you are, the passage is there for you in the bulletin, but if you're looking in your Bible, you may notice some brackets around this text. And I want to just acknowledge those brackets and a little bit of what they mean. There is uh, some debate about this text, debate about how it fits into uh, John's gospel. You may notice a footnote in your Bible that says that some of the earliest manuscripts don't include this text. Some of the earlier manuscripts might have it in a different section of John, and some of the early manuscripts put it with Luke's gospel account. Um, there's debate on how this text fits into John's gospel, but what is... Um, what is abundantly clear is there is there's consensus that these verses are authentic, that they are apostolic, that they capture an event that took place in Jesus' Jesus's ministry. And, and so while there's debate about how it fits into the gospel account, we believe that it is true. We believe that it is consistent with the whole of Scripture, and we believe it paints for us a helpful, beautiful picture of the heart and character of Jesus. And so this morning as we approach this text, I, I preach it. I preach it in a manner that is consistent with the whole of Scripture, with the hope and prayer that through it we might see Jesus. As we prepare to, to look to these verses, let us let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Would you bow with me? Father, I pray that as we look to this passage, that that you would be you would be our teacher, you would be our guide. That that I would quickly fade into the background. That that Jesus would increase. That Jesus would be on display. That that we would all see and know and love. Jesus. Do this, we ask, in his abundant name. Amen. Friends, this is John 7 and 53 through 8, 11. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. 
And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. If we were about to do some exercises. The first step would be to, uh, to do some stretching. And you stretch before you exercise because you want to get your, your muscles warmed up. You want to get them loosened so that they are prepared to do the real work that is to come during the meat of the exercise. I want us to do some spiritual stretching this morning. I want us to warm up our heart as we prepare to do the real work that will come in a moment. We'll do some spiritual stretching as I, uh, as I ask you a few questions to prepare our hearts. And here's the first question. How do you view sinners? How do you view sinners? It may sound like uh, a, a bit of an odd question. It's not one I ask you to answer out loud, but it's one I want you to consider in the quietness of your heart. How do you view sinners? The text this morning speaks of an adulteress, so maybe we'll start there. How do you view an adulteress? Is the sinner icky? Keeping we, someone we want to keep sort of at a distance or, or further? Is, it, is the sinner someone to be avoided? Someone to be ignored? Maybe to be sentenced and, and stuck away so that we don't have to deal with them anymore? Next question, why? Why are those thoughts in your heart and what might they be revealing both about the way you think about yourself and about the way you think about Jesus here's another one when I asked the question about how you view sinners did you happen to include yourself in those thoughts What is Jesus' goal when it comes to sinners? Is it restoration of, of some cultural version of morality? Or is it rescuing the sinner? And are they mutually exclusive? And how might it change things if instead of talking about some cultural understanding of morality, we talked about a Focus on the holiness of God. There's a few questions for you, for us, as we warm up our hearts and prepare our hearts for this text. It is our spiritual stretching, but having warmed up, let's, let's consider this text. And let's, let's start by considering the, the actors uh, present in this scene. Put yourself there. Put yourself there in, 
in the moment, in that day. The scene opened up with Jesus teaching the crowd, sitting with them, maybe in a circle, teaching them. And then all of a sudden, there's, a, there's an interruption because the scribes and the Pharisees, they, they interrupt this scene. They, they barge in with a sinner in tow. An adulteress. Now, mind you, in this text, there doesn't really seem to be any doubt about her guilt. She was caught in the act, whatever that might mean. But what's striking in this scene is the purpose behind it all. Why did the scribes and the Pharisees bring this sinful woman to Jesus? The law says that we stone such women. You can almost hear the condescension dripping from their voice. Jesus, what do you say we do? See, verse 6 makes it clear in this, that their purpose in this whole interaction has nothing to do with the woman. It has nothing to do, quite frankly, with the law. It has everything to do with Jesus. They are there to test Jesus. The whole interaction is revealing of their heart. They come abusing and using both this woman and the law all to test and trap Jesus. There's an irony in it all. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees were supposed to be the ones with the high view of the law. But they come abusing it. What are we to make of all of this? I want to start by sharing with you something that might make you feel a bit uncomfortable. Scribes and Pharisees were at least partially correct. They were. They talked about the law of Moses. So understand what was the law of Moses. The law of Moses was the moral law contained in the Ten Commandments. The law of Moses was the uh, the ceremony or the civil law, the book of the covenant, which applied the moral law, the Ten Commandments, to the theocratic nation of Israel, outlining how it would be applied and what punishment was to be meted out. And the, the law of Moses included the ceremonial law, how the people of Israel were to worship God. The seventh commandment. And the moral law was thou shalt not commit adultery. And then the book of the covenant outlined how the seventh commandment was to be applied to the people of Israel. And so Leviticus 20.10 and Deuteronomy 22.22 very clearly said that the adulteress was to be put to death. Scribes and Pharisees were at least partially correct. There's several other factors that we need to understand, several factors that we're telling in this scene. You see, Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 22 also said that the man was to be put to death. This woman had been caught in the act of adultery, whatever that may mean. 
It was abundantly clear that she was not a single actor. But the Pharisees were not concerned about the man. They didn't bring him. They grabbed the woman quickly and took her to Jesus. You see, those advocating for the law are misusing it themselves. Their, their execution of the law was faulty, but so was their purpose. Again, their purpose was to get at Jesus. For them, the woman was merely a prop. They caught her, grabbed her, and saw in her an opportunity to bag their true prize, Jesus. Jesus' response, which we'll look to in just a moment, exposed everything in them. So if that was their purpose, what was the purpose of the law then and, oh, by the way, now? purpose of the law, first and foremost, is for the glory of God, that God may be glorified. The moral law is a summation of the holiness of God. His holiness is on display. And the application of the law must be that our great holy God would be glorified. The purpose of the law is that God would be glorified and that sinners would be reclaimed. Friends, understand none are righteous, no, not one. None then, none now. And the law of God, then and now, is not a means by which we may be justified before God because none of us uphold the law. The law itself does not justify us. The law condemns us. And so the law is used to reclaim sinners as the law exposes in sinners their need of a redeemer. You see, the law points us to Jesus. and The law pointed them to Jesus. And in the Old Testament, the law pointed the Old Testament saints to the redeemer who was to come. The glory of God and the reclaiming of sinners, neither of which was their purpose that day. For them, the sinner was a prop, the law was a tool, all of which to be used to manipulate Jesus. Imagine their anticipation. They thought the trap was set. They thought they were ready. But beautifully, Jesus took control of the whole scene. I asked you a series of questions at the beginning. Here's another one. Who are the sinners in this passage? Everyone not named Jesus. And so in every element of this scene, we, we see Jesus' heart on display. Again, how did the scene open the... Jesus walked up and the crowds came to him. And what did he do when this crowd came to him, this crowd of sinners? He sat down with them. It's a picture of unhurried presence. Jesus is there 
to love the people? Do you see his loving care of sinners as he simply sat down? Posture tells us much, doesn't it? Posture tells us much about our willingness to listen. If you think about your own interactions with others, how often do you find yourself when someone is talking to you, walking away, head over shoulder, semi-listening, but your direction telling a very different story? Posture tells us much about our focus on a person and whether or not we are listening and engaged. What was Jesus' posture? He sat down. Jesus made time for the sinners to be with them and to teach them. It's easy for us to overlook this, this sweet, simple picture of Jesus' heart on display as he engages the sinner, but it's not the only picture that we have of Jesus' engagement in this text. You see the scribes and the Pharisees. They were also sinners. But in their interaction with Jesus, they displayed not a willingness of heart, but a hardness of heart. They came demanding. They came accusing. They came scheming. But Jesus refused to bend to their demands. Instead, he bent down to write in the dirt. What are we to make of this. Wouldn't you love to know what Jesus was writing there on the ground? Was he sort of sketching out a, a play of what's about to happen like little boys do in the backyard playing football? Was he, was he sending a, a message to the woman, a message of encouragement? Was he, was he writing out a word of condemnation for the scribes and Pharisees? Only Jesus knows, but my best guess is that he was really writing nothing specific. Because what he wrote wasn't the point of the whole interaction. The point was his deafening silence. They came demanding of Jesus, but Jesus refused to allow them to use the woman as a prop. They kept yapping. So Jesus stood up. And he spoke. He faced them and he silenced them with one profound sentence. And that one sentence, both what he said and what he didn't say, were important. Jesus didn't make light of her sin. Jesus didn't abolish the seventh commandment. And Jesus did not even reject the death penalty. What he did say was meant to show that these scribes and Pharisees were, were unfit to execute the judgment that they called for. Verse 7, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. In doing so, Jesus affirmed the law and its purpose. 
They have to go together. Jesus affirmed the law and its purpose. Remember, the purpose of the law was for the glory of God and for the reclamation of sinners. Understand that there was forgiveness of sin in the Old Testament. His people repented of sin and looked forward to the Redeemer who was to come. There was forgiveness of sin in the Old Testament for the repentant sinner. Yes, there was earthly consequences that had to be dealt with. But the punishment that was meted out as a result of the civil law, the law of Moses, it was reserved for the unrepentant sinner. Two illustrations from the Old Testament draw this out for us. The first, in Numbers chapter 25, Phineas, who was Aaron's son, who was zealous for the glory of God, Phineas meted out the punishment articulated in Leviticus and Deuteronomy as two adulterers, an adulterer and adulteress, came flaunting through the camp, committing the sin of adultery in front of the whole assembly as the Lord was punishing the people for their sin of intermarrying with the Canaanites. Phineas, zealous for God, executed those who would flaunt their sin in the face of the Lord. One example. But there's another. The Lord sent the prophet Nathan to David. Not to execute him because of his adultery and murder, but to call him to repentance, a repentance that he embraced passionately and beautifully and articulated for us in the Word of God in Psalm 51. Yes, there were earthly consequences for David's sin, but there was mercy in face of his repentance. The mercy of God was present. Is the Old Testament saints repented and looked in faith to the Redeemer who would come, just as there was mercy in this scene and mercy in our day. But you see, for the Pharisees, their goal was neither the glory of God or the reclamation of sinners, and so Jesus exposed them. So Jesus' interaction with sinners, with the crowd, with the scribes and Pharisees, But his heart was also on display with the sinful woman. With her, Jesus engaged with truth and grace. This interaction, Jesus wasn't excusing adultery. Jesus wasn't ushering in a new sexual ethic. No, he called sin, sin. But he did so in love. And Jesus lovingly and directly called the woman to repent. Go and sin no more. Do you see the heart of Jesus in this interaction with the woman? He wasn't repulsed by her. He didn't see her as icky. He didn't see her as an object to be discarded. He saw her as a person. He saw her as a child. A child who needed truth 
and grace. And so he loved her. What are we here today to make of this text? How are we to apply it in our own lives? I asked in the beginning, how do you view the sinner? Can we view the sinner the way Jesus views the sinner? Can we learn to engage, to love the sinner the way Jesus engages and loves the sinner? Let us do so. By refusing to be manipulated by external forces and to see the sinner as a person created in the image of God. Desperate need of a redeemer. It doesn't mean that we ignore sin. It means that we lovingly enter in. It means we lovingly exercise church discipline. It means we lovingly shepherd in the face of sin. Galatians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul uh, articulated how we are to view the sinner the way Jesus views the sinner and put it out for us in the church. Galatians 6, 1 through 3 are verses that we as a session will often remind ourselves of as we consider our call to, to shepherd the body of Christ. There in Galatians 6, 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul writes, Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Paul's articulating how we are to apply these lessons. It is a call for us to be deeply rooted in the gospel. It's a call for us to love well, to be truthful, to seek repentance and restoration, knowing first and foremost that we ourselves are forgiven sinners. Let us not forget we ourselves are forgiven sinners. Friends, how are we to apply this text? We're to learn to love the sinner the way Jesus loves the sinner. But there is also a more fundamental, a more foundational question than how do you view the sinner? And it's this. How do you view Jesus? How do you view Jesus? I don't know the woman's response in this text. We don't see her again, or at least not that we know of. There's speculation that, that this woman is one of the women who gather around Jesus later in the gospel. Maybe. Maybe, but it ultimately doesn't matter because our takeaway from this text is not dependent upon the woman. We are here to preach Jesus. And we see in Jesus and his interaction with the crowd and with the scribes and the Pharisees and, and with this woman, a Savior who is strong and kind. I have a friend who has shared with me the importance of these verses in his own 
coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Friend describes his his growing up with a particular church background where he received alternating and confusing messages about Christianity. On one hand, he heard of a Christianity that was centered on external morality, often laid out based on a harsh and superficial view of the law. On the other hand, he heard a Jesus preached who was sweet, yet almost passive. And then he came to this passage. And in this passage, we see the God-man. In this passage, we see Jesus strong and kind. In this passage, we see true masculinity. Certain in his union with the Father, confident in his mission, fierce in his defense of his beloved, unwavering in his fight against the wolves. Rather than an external morality, we see in this text Jesus fighting for a heart of holiness. We see in this passage Jesus' heart for the sinner. We see him fighting the wolves. We see him redeeming the broken and contrite. In this portrait of Jesus and his interaction with the crowd and with the woman and most certainly with the scribes and the Pharisees, we see him calm. We see him unwavering. We see him engaging. We see him forthright. We see him strong. As he fights for the heart of the sinner. Which means that this Jesus, strong and kind, this Redeemer fights for us. This is the portrait of Jesus that we have as he speaks truth. As he calls for repentance and he does it all in love. Friends, let us look upon Jesus the way this woman must have looked upon him. I want you to see the reality of what Jesus is saying to this woman, particularly when he tells her that he does not condemn her. You see, in advocating for this woman, Jesus does not deny the death penalty. Jesus does not deny that sin is abhorrent to our holy God. And Jesus does not deny that justice will be meted out. But what he says in this text, in this scene in John 8, was true then and it's true today. It is the truth of the gospel. The justice of God will not be meted out by the hands of man. The justice of God will be meted out by the hands of the Lord. That means there is hope. There is hope for the repentant sinner, for the woman, and for us. Because rather than condemning her, Jesus, the only one in this scene who was without sin, said, I will take your place. He looks upon us. Sinners in this room. 
And he says, I will take your place. This is the message of the cross. Jesus saves sinners. And it is all of his grace. A grace that we receive through faith alone in Christ alone. What are we to do with this text? How are we to view the sinner? Oh, let it be the way that Jesus views the sinner. But how are we to view Jesus? Let it be the way this woman most certainly must have looked upon him that day as our Redeemer, strong and kind. Father, this is the portrait that you have given us this day of our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. We know that you love him. He is your beloved. Give us hearts of love as we see him. Let us see him as our Redeemer. Do this we ask in his name. Amen.